Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra, and you're listening to Authentic Biochemistry Podcast. Today is the 17th of August, 2022. So let's continue with lecture number 36 in membrane biochemistry. I told you this was going to be a long arc of lectures, and so I'm sure you're not surprised that that is what has perpetuated. We're talking about corticotropin-releasing factor. Let's continue along this, uh, at least for one more episode, because it runs deep into a discussion of membrane biological capacitance in relationship to binding to receptors and carrying out signal transduction in unique cellular associations. And that's the real key to authenticity in biochemistry. One cannot think about a ligand or a receptor and expose all the traits of that ligand binding. If it's a G protein coupled receptor in a neuron, for example, and carry out the signal transduction of that binding relative to gene expression, uh, processing of the transcript, processing of the polypeptide after translation uh, through glycosylation and then say secretion such as a neuropeptide. Now, that's not enough because what you have to understand is each membrane is going to have a composition of lipids and proteins that is going to be unique to that cellular genomic and phenotypic signature that will nevertheless be altered biophysically and biochemically without nascent gene expression upon exposure to danger signals. Danger signals can be endogenous or exogenous. They can be living, such as bacterial pathogens, or they can be completely abiotic, such as solar radiation. But the responses are unique. They are coded by a multiplicity of protein-protein interactions that are all still occurring in the membrane all at the level of a microsecond to millisecond temporal uh, time frame, uh, temporal signature. Once there's a rearrangement of membrane lipids and the proteins associated with those lipids, the fine tailoring of the communication from the external danger stimulus to the internalized danger response can commence. And so that's the, that, that's the 30,000 foot detail uh, and overview that you can carry with you through all these lectures. What we're doing here in the last seven or eight lectures is getting into a great deal of detail about neurotransmission and the neuroendocrine system. And so it's far afield from talking about membrane fluid dynamics, but I wanted you to keep that in mind as we discuss these some way, in some ways, peripheral interactions occurring with protein-protein um, dimerization, trimerization, and alteration of signaling via um, phosphohydrolase activity, kinase activity, or, for example, the kind of canonical production of cyclic AMP or cyclic GMP. So 
We talked about the fact that there is a releasing hormone called corticotropin. And what this hormone does upon stimulation of its synthesis and secretion is activate another hormone called ACTH, which then goes on to stimulate, finally, the production of glucocorticoids, that is corticosteroids like cortisol, which acts in a immune suppressing danger amplification mode to the periphery and to multiple circuits still remaining in the central nervous system. So now I'm telling you there are sex differences in the CRF signaling as there are sex differences in many biochemical phenomena, not just the ones you would normally bring to mind that are associated specifically, for example, with female fertility or male fertility or reproduction. Those are certainly good cases. But even in instances where one doesn't normally think about being sexually dimorphic, such as neuroendocrine hormone uh, signaling. So there are sex differences, and indeed there are sex differences in disease. So some diseases are more prevalent in male versus female. And yes, these can be associated directly with um, sex-linked secondary physiological characteristics. Those do exist, but they also exist, just like the examples I just mentioned to you um, a minute ago. They also exist in, in classical neuroendocrine biochemical response pathways. So <clears throat> many diseases are associated with stress, such as hyperinflammation. And you know that inflammation is somewhat controlled by corticosteroids, therefore CRH being the initial factor triggering that response. This is a good inroad into this discussion. So there are stress-related psychiatric diseases that we have talked about in this series of lectures and that I've published on and that I've talked about in other lectures um, over the last several decades. But we all know these psychiatric diseases, neuropsychiatric, that have a medical component. They include anxiety disorder, major depression disorder, PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, but also many of the neuroimmune disorders that we've talked about um, over the last uh, three weeks, I guess. Some of them actually uh, involve metabolic syndrome, irritable bowel syndrome, but yet others, and those tend to be more male-oriented, uh, that is, when you look at IBS or metabolic syndrome, more men have metabolic syndrome than women, and more women have irritable bowel syndrome than men. So there is a uh, differentiation between the sexes that is not directly related to reproduction, right? Okay, so some disorders that are associated with stress include 
neuropsychiatric conditions involved in addiction and drug abuse. And addiction and drug abuse is more common in men than in women. But that uh, fact is somewhat undermined by the fact that there's a decreased exposure of women to drugs because when women are exposed to drugs, they develop addiction at a higher rate than men. And this includes alcoholism. So why would that then still tip the scales to having men be more um, suffering from addiction than women? Because women get addicted quicker at a higher rate and either that addiction leads to death or it leads to recovery sooner than with men because the rate of plunging into the addiction is much more, um, the velocity of that is much higher with women. Okay. So let's talk about CRF in this context of male female distinction of disease. Remember that uh, corticotropin releasing factor or corticotropin releasing hormones, the same 41 amino acid neuropeptide, is in front and center involved in the stress response. So multiple kinds of stress in term and in, in even things like changes in temperature or changes in sun exposure or changes in affect will trigger CRF release from neurons in the paraventricular hypothalamic nuclei. And of course, they project into what's known as the median eminence where the CRF enters portal circulation. So that means that it can contact anterior pituitary corticotrophs, which then initiate the second level of the cascade, which is adrenocorticotropic hormone secretion, ACTH, right? So there's a neuroanatomical roadway that enhances CRF initiating ACTH secretion. Now, this neurohormone action of CRF is essentially classical endocrine cascade activity. And it will elicit an adrenal corticosteroid release, as you know. And that's basically the first biologically examined form of human stress. Okay, measuring increases in corticosteroid release is a hallmark of, of stress in humans. Physiological stress, pathological stress, neuropsychological stress, to name three. And that's a general response generating CRF to all stressors that have been looked at. And obviously, that means that we're interested in what's going on in the neurons of the paraventricular hypothalamus, because those tend to be neurons that are specifically genetically presented to be associated with stress. So this involves basically a neuroendocrine circuit. And there's going to be a lot more. I'm going to talk about that later, but just keep that in mind what I just said. 
And there are multiple stressors which activate CRF in limbic and in autonomic related brain regions. And of course, those will project to monoamine nuclei. Remember what the monoamines are. Those are such things as serotonin and the catecholamines, adrenaline and noradrenaline. So that means you're going to have CRF cell bodies that are going to be directly linked to these monoamine nuclei in yet other brain nuclei. Now, within all of those circuits, CRF is the brain neurotransmitter that essentially regulates autonomic, behavioral, and indeed the cognitive link to the stress response. You know, we talked a lot about the prefrontal cortex in previous lectures and how in humans, the effect of faculties of understanding imagination and contemplation, which is the rational mind, play the central role in governing the will, the free will of the agent human to interact with its environment. And that downstream from that interaction is all the neurobiochemistry. So there is signaling, signaling from, remember I started off with waveform electromagnetic radiation, signaling through receptors. They could be nociceptors, uh, they can be uh, visual receptors, they can be sensorial, the fingertips, doesn't matter where these receptors are. Heat sensing, right? But what occurs is that initial sensing is recognized by a priori structures, which are localized in the central nervous system that allow for the agent human to not only respond to the danger signal sensu stricto, but to cognize the nature of the danger signal and respond accordingly. And that response includes all the downstream biochemical physiological changes, including things like uh, at the biochemical level, gene expression. So that's a very important issue I want to keep on bringing up because it's very significant and it's easy to lose track of that if you don't think about it. So there are complementary neurohormones and neurotransmitters that function around the CRF. So you generate then a coordinated platform of molecular events which together becomes the stress response. And because CRF seems to play such an important role in many of these canonical stress responses, it's something that we need to look at very carefully because we do share CRF uh, neurohormone systems with other mammals. But where it ends is almost where we are really interested in talking about. What are the cognitive effects of those stress responses? Not simply you touch something hot and you pull your hand away. But such things as when you hear a sound and you discern and then discriminate what that sound comes from and then respond accordingly. You don't respond to uh, 
moonlight appearing because a cloud moves away from the moon as you do a bright flashlight or a car light when you're walking down the road. Yet those are instantaneous responses, right? So that obviously involves the rational mind. Okay. So what are the signal transduction pathways with CRF once it binds to its receptor? Remember there are at least two CRF receptors, right? Receptor one, receptor two. Now in the brain, CRF one couples with a G stimulatory protein. And what that means, you're going to get right downstream from it, the activation of the enzyme adenylate cyclase, which is going to generate cyclic AMP, which will then downstream from its processing will activate protein kinase A. But CRF1 also couples to a GQ protein or G inhibitory type protein. And now that's linked to the activation of PLC or phospholipase C1. So when, when the GQ, that is the G protein coupled to the CRF receptor one is triggered. The GQ will trigger activity of phospholipase C, which will take phosphatidylinositol and break it down to diacylglycerol. And depending on the species of sugar that's associated with the inositol phosphate, one example would be inositol 145-trisphosphate. Now, inositol 145-trisphosphate, that sugar, that phosphorylated sugar, will increase calcium mobilization. The other product of the PLC from the phosphatidylinositol will be diacylglycerol, as I mentioned. And as you all well know, because you are, you are novice, at, 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 I hope, uh, at lipid biochemistry, so diacylglycerol, you know, triggers protein kinase C. Now protein kinase C will phosphorylate the CRF receptor. And now those CRF receptors are embedded in membranes endogenous to the cell. And those are, that's going to include a whole series of subcellular domain targets. PKC will also directly be associated with chromatin remodeling to enhance gene transcription, or in some instances to annul or inhibit gene transcription. So that's CRF1 working through the GQ pathway. Now, when it works through the G stimulatory pathway, as I said, it activates the denylate cyclase, you make cyclic AMP, which also activates a protein kinase, but this is protein kinase A. Protein kinase A will phosphorylate the protein known as CREB, which will enhance gene transcription, where CREB will bind to its enhancer region. CREB is a transcription factor. But also PKA will phosphorylate ion channels, thus changing the polarity of the membrane. Now this is all coming from CRF, binding to the CRF1 
receptor, and I'm not finished. That same receptor can also be internalized with beta-arrestin. It's another protein. And beta-arrestin now associating with the G protein coupled receptor, non-G protein coupled receptor, CRF1, because it's three components, will actually internalize the receptor to the endosome. One of the possible uh, outcomes of that is that the CRF receptor will be degraded. The other possibility is it will be simply endosomally recycled to another three-dimensional space on the membrane, which will alter its discrete and unique signaling because of its placement in the membrane. Okay? So you get the idea of the complexity here. All right. Let's move on. Now, there's a distinction, as I said, five minutes ago between male and female on those canonical CRF responses. So CRF1 trafficking in conditions when you have excess corticotropin releasing factor in females because arrestin, beta arrestin 2 binds to CRF1 actually becomes compromised. So when that happens in females, when you have an excess of CRF, CRF1 is on the plasma membrane bound to its receptor. That's receptor one. And therefore, it remains free to couple to the G-stimulatory protein. So females have less beta-arrestin. So beta-arrestin, remember, removes the CRF receptor one from the plasma membrane and either sets up for recycling or for degradation. But because females have less of this beta-arrestin two polypeptide, the CRF receptor one stays in the plasma membrane where it's free to couple to the G-stimulatory protein. Now that's distinct from males because males have a higher level of beta-arrestin. It associates with CRF1 receptor and internalizes it to the early endosomal trafficking pathway. And when that happens, CRF1 can potentially be sequestered there until it's recycled back to the plasma membrane, or it can also, depending on what signaling is downstream from that presentation, it could be degraded in the lysosome. So that means you get less receptor initially because it gets sequestered by the beta arrestin association. So right away, you can see that CRF, CRF will bind to CRF receptor one in a more sustaining modality than it will, and also quantitative model, uh, uh, quantitative characteristics. So its modality will be that it will be on more. So its presentation will occur longer, but it will also, because it occurs longer, the quantitative and qualitative effects of CRF binding to this receptor will also be sustained in the female cell that's being activated by CRF as opposed to the male cell because the male cell, most male cells in the male 
express higher levels of beta arrestin too. So that doesn't occur. So right away, you can see there's a sexual dimorphism there. So because of that, there's been an argument that you have sex-biased CRF receptor 1 signaling. In females, because you have this decreased ability of the CRF receptor 1 to associate with beta arrestin 2, you bias the signaling through the G-stimulatory pathways. Contrast with the male, because a CRF receptor does associate with beta arrestin 2, you get a bias towards beta arrestin 2 related pathways, which I just told you is either sequestration and relocation of the receptor to another space on the membrane or degradation. Now, it's argued that because of these sex differences, there is an association of CRF with sex-specific, male or female, cellular responses that can be argued to translate. Like it's a stress response, remember? It can be argued, can be associated with different kinds of pathophysiologies. What kind? The kind that stress responses are involved in, such as coping responses, and thus the potential for differentiated neuropathologies. Okay. So one of the arguments is that with females, because you have lower levels of beta arrest and there's more G-stimulatory protein, you activate more protein kinase A, remember because of cyclic AMP, being uh, increased because of the activity of of this G-stimulatory protein on, on adenylate cyclase. And cyclic AMP will enhance more protein kinase A activity, but also ER kinase activity or the ERK kinase. Both of those responses have been linked to depression, PTSD, and in some uh, papers, it's even been associated with the IBS, the irritable bowel syndrome. Whereas in the male, where there's higher levels of beta arrestin binding to the CRF receptor 1, G-stimulatory protein is not involved, but rather the Rho and the CERC kinases are more active downstream because of the processing of the signaling. And there you get a pathology that's more linked to addiction addiction or repetitive behavior, which involves such uh, poor behaviors as substance abuse. Okay. So now this is in the neuroscience literature. I'm just explaining to you now, whether or not I feel that the papers have adequately demonstrated this, that there is adequate evidence, I would have to say um, the, the jury is still out on that. There are a lot of very compelling, um, meta-analysis on, on, a, on the whole accumulation of papers on particularly ma- major depressive disorder and substance abuse that does find this alteration of CRF stimulation between the male and the female. 
And then that downstream association with stress linked to all these kinase cascades, which could potentially be linked to downstream substrates that are linked rather either to major depressive disorder, PTSD, irritable bowel syndrome in the female versus the use of substances, perhaps to act as a coping behavior in males. Okay. It's opening this up for you, right? There's a lot I could say about it, and I'd be glad to, but right now we're just moving. This is all about membrane biochemistry. I'm just telling you that now all that was involved in membrane metabolism, right? That receptors in the membrane, the ligand binding to it, those initial enzymes, the, the phospholipase C, the adenylate cyclase, all those G protein coupled responses, the beta arrestinus associated with the membrane, directly with the membrane protein, the, the CRF receptor one. These are all membrane lipid raft interactions. Okay. I just haven't filled all of that filigree in yet, but understand they are because you know that that's why we're talking about them. Now, let me talk a little bit about the locus coriolis neuro, neuroendocrine, uh, excuse me, norepinephrine system. It is a neuroendocrine system, but specifically norepinephrine. Now, the locus coriolis norepinephrine system regulates arousal and with that a whole diversity of state dependent behavioral and physiological functions that moderate arousal now you know this is going to be linked to stress right because arousal is going to be linked to stress now arousal can function in multiple levels of of conditioning i've got to go now i'm looking at my time We'll pick up this really interesting topic next time. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, saying bye for now.